Dirty History is produced by Muckraker Media. So, if you value this show and podcast in general as an educational resource, please consider passing it on to another person. The best way we can spread is by word of mouth. That said, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on whatever platform you get this show on. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get the show, please subscribe and review. The same goes for Muckraker Media. If you like this show, there are others on the network tailored to your interest. Go check them out. MuckrakerMedia.org. M-U-C-K-R-A-K-E-R Media. This simple act, four minutes of your time, will help the show more than any dollar amount could, and it will help you curate a podcast feed you're proud of. So once again, wherever you get Dirty History, please subscribe, like, review, and be sure to check out Muckraker Media. With that, on with the show. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. In this episode, I sit down with the co-founders of an art gallery that must deal daily with the logistics of operating under the legal gray area that is Washington, D.C.'s cannabis laws. And I know what you're thinking. Why does an art gallery in Washington, D.C. care about cannabis or the laws dealing with it? Well, because in Washington, D.C., it is perfectly legal to possess marijuana up to a certain quantity, and it is perfectly legal to share that plant with another consenting adult. However, it is illegal to sell marijuana. Again, you can possess it up to a certain amount. You can use it on private property, but you may not sell it. That said, there is a little gray area. There's no real mention of gifting cannabis. You can, it seems, sell artwork and in appreciation of your customer, give them a certain amount of weed as a token of gratitude. You're not selling weed, you're selling artwork, and out of appreciation to the customer, you're gifting them weed if they so desire. And it's that gray area that interests me. What is it like to run a business that is somewhere between a clandestine operation and a perfectly legal market? What are the restrictions on an organization? What does competition look like? What are the regulations? I'm interested in this market. It seems like an original market to study. I'm not sure I'm aware of any other market that is similar. It's a gifting model of legal cannabis. That is the foundational context you'll need to fully immerse yourself in my conversation with Chris and Anise of the Art Gallery District Herb. this episode, I am sitting down with Chris and Anise of the DC Art Gallery District Derp. Thank you for coming on. Hi Thank there. So Thanks for having us. So I, I suppose off the bat, not qualifying art gallery with a few statements is, is a bit disingenuous. So District Derp sells pieces made exclusively by your Alaskan Klikai Sudo, and you give as a gift of goodwill to your art gallery customers weed. So I have to ask, uh, what, what was the inspiration? What led you to start District Derp? You want well, to take it? Should I take it? Well, so there's a few parts <laughs> to the beginning of District Derp. Um, the, the, the why did we start an Initiative 71 business to start with? There's, there's that piece of the question. And then there's the why did we go with our dog painting art part of the question. Um, so I guess to why did we start District Derp at all? Um, we were both cannabis consumers prior to this, um, and we were just really unsatisfied with what we were finding in DC ser- um, in terms of services. Um, you didn't you didn't know what you were getting. You didn't know sometimes when they were going to show up. You didn't know what what to be looking for. You didn't you didn't know what was going on, and there wasn't. Um, Quality, there wasn't real sense of safety, and I'm I'm personally from California, um, so I had seen a, a legalized market in its in its entirety and like what it really could be, 
And I remember just discussing with Chris one day how after a particularly horrible delivery and we just looked at each other, we realized we could do this so much better. Like there, there is, there is something here that could be so massively improved upon. Um, as for the dog painting yeah. portion. Um, so I have a, I have a friend, Neil, he lives in Seattle at the moment, but he, he, we were all sitting on our, on my couch and we were, you know, talking, smoking, things like that. And so we were, and so we looked down at Sudo and Neil looks at her and he goes, man, you've taught this dog to. Sudo's the dog. Dog. Yeah. Um, so he looks at Sudo and he says, man, you know, Chris, you've taught this dog to roll over. You've taught her to sit and give me paw, you know, little things. But I mean, can she really do anything impressive? <laughs> and I was, I'm kind of affronted by that, you know? Yeah. And so I, I say, you know, like, okay, Neil, what is the, you know, what's the impressive thing <laughs> that you'd like her to do? And, you know, we go back and forth with like, you know, kind of ridiculous things like, oh, can she grab a beer out of the fridge and open it for you or like, <laughs> stuff like that but you know yeah. we eventually he got to painting and i just kind of grinned and thought man i'm gonna teach this dog how to paint the <laughs> shit out of something <laughs> that's fantastic oh that's great and then you just married the two ideas together and well we yeah i mean it, it just kind of it kind of happened that way because as we were going through the process of, I guess, legitimizing, you know, getting a, getting a legal team together, you know, creating our, like creating our actual business, um, the licensing portion of it, the, like those types of things. So once we started going through that and we had to actually come up with a business plan and, and things like that, you know, it just, it made sense for yeah. who we were as, people I, i've always kind of been a, not an artist in the traditional like visual art sense but mm. i've always you know i've always played music i've always been um a singer i've always done theater and things like that so i've always kind of had that art background yeah, yeah. and anis actually comes from a family of artists i do my my uncle is an artist my brother is an artist um visual art has been a big part of my upbringing um and one of the big things about art is that it's it's completely subjective. It is entirely up to the viewer how valuable mm. it is. Yeah. And when you when you come to that, when you come to building out a business model um, that accommodates the gifting model, um, something having an item that has variable value. Yeah. Is very helpful. Very helpful, very yeah. helpful. And the fact that it was our dog painting it mm -hmm. just makes it that much better. That much better because, I mean, everybody's heard or seen on YouTube, like the dog that paints or the elephant that paints or something yeah. along those lines. And so why not our dog that paints? Like, yeah. Why not? Exactly. So when... You, you've hinted at this a little bit, but when, when you launched in 2018, what, what was the state of the marketplace? I mean, you were entering and competing in. Was it was it formalized? Was there a lot of competition? Or was it this, still this very loose kind of thing that, as you hinted at, was still a little dangerous, a little uncertain, very unreliable? I mean, what... Because you the, the service you provide seems very, very um, punctual and precise and, I mean, quality control. Oh. We'll get to all of that in a little bit, but what, what was the state of the marketplace when you entered it? I'd say you could sum it up in one little phrase. It was like the Wild West. There <laughs> yeah. was, there's a lot going on. There's, there were already quite a few services in the mix, um, but there's no real rules. There's no real regulations. There's, it's, it's kind of just a lot of services seeing what they could get, get away, away, away with and yeah. how much they kind of grab. And I think that there's not only was it the Wild West like in that way, but I think there was also just a uncertainty 
about cannabis in mm -hmm. DC. I think that if you if you were to go to pretty much anyone and you know say, oh hey, like how do you think the weed is in DC? You know, like mm -hmm. how do you think that is? They probably would be like, you know, I, you know, I'm not really sure, or something yeah. like that. You know, they they might have they might have heard something about it. Maybe they have a friend that lives in DC. You know, who's been on the scene. But it's not like California or Nevada or Washington where you know you, we've had we've got all this press and all of this um oversight yeah that goes on yeah you and you'd have you'd have you'd have people selling you a cookie for for seventy dollars it it like it it didn't it didn't always make the most sense and there really wasn't a sense like i was saying before there wasn't a sense of quality there wasn't a sense of safety um there or uh, there wasn't a an idea of what was the experience like for the customer there was no customer in in mind no client in mind um it was really a lot more about guys wanting to hit a number like that's yeah. that's the story that we heard from a lot of services was you know they would the the founder would set a target and then would leave as soon as they they hit mm -hmm. that target um i remember one was what was it the district guy made see yeah uh, so the guy who created district c he had, I think, $4 million in mind. So he wanted to make $4 million and be and out. out. And he he dissolved the business. The, like He hit his mark, dissolved the business, never never really heard of him again. And the I think somebody actually took up the mantle of District of C, which kind of like, I think they, they were doing um, art done by the, by the deaf. So I think that they, there's actually another service that has popped up yeah. with that as well. But, you know, I, I love the analogy you use, though, about uh, about the, it was like the the gold rush. Right. Or um, it was like the Wild West, rather. Yeah. And um, the gold it's, it, it's yeah. interesting because as often is the case, people refer to legal cannabis as the next gold rush. And it's and considering that I mean, you were talking about there's not much there was not much consumer concern when you first started up in uh, 2018. There was guys with get rich schemes and, you know, make four million dollars and bounce. And it really is reminiscent of a lot of what was going on during the gold rush. I mean, in my research for this episode, I found so many examples of D.C. businesses price gouging. I mean, there's dubious claims of safety and quality that aren't backed up by reviews at all. And typically in legal markets, you see more examples of quality control, you see safety guarantees, and in some occasions you'll see competition, you know, between vendors and thus lowering prices. That doesn't really seem to be the case in, in DC. Why is my main question. I mean, at least as someone who's operating in the marketplace, what have you seen as a contributing factor to this phenomenon that there isn't a wider safety guarantee, there isn't competition lowering prices i mean what's the deal going on there really if you wanted to just break it down and simply it's because it's expensive time consuming and not mandated there. that's that's pretty much it as a business you're ultimately constrained by your bottom line and most people took initiative 71 as this kind of carte blanche way to run their business to you know run it to pretty much make the highest margins as possible with as little thought and work you know in it and it really i mean and it lends itself to that because of because of mm -hmm. the way that they've because of the ambiguity ambiguity, ambiguity. yeah yeah surrounding so like model. there's been so many websites I've I've seen that, that they don't even have websites. As a matter of fact, it's like a Facebook page of a Facebook page or uh, an Instagram, you know, an Instagram a... or like some strange site that houses ten other sites on. It just doesn't yeah. see, it. Very, it seems very sketchy. It still feels like you're you're doing something illegal, right? That you shouldn't yeah. be doing. Yeah. And was that a concerted effort on your part to not go that way? To really put the time into design and, and be very concerned and conscious about your quality control and all—I mean, everything that goes into making a reliable and you know a safe feeling business. Yeah, yeah, that was really, really fundamental to our building of the brand when we started this. Um, 
So one of the things about cannabis also is that it's a very male dominated industry. Um, you just do not see a lot of women in cannabis. I think there's like maybe what 12 or 13% of the industry are female. Um, and with that, you, what I noticed was that there's a huge, um, I guess, investment into thought of safety and thought of making your customer feel sketched out or making them feel like they're in an unsafe environment. And, um, yeah. yeah. So I think that in the male dom dominated world of cannabis, you have a lot of things that are kind of like, you know, that should make your ears perk up a little bit. And there's the half naked women as part of the marketing campaign. There's the, you know, the cartoons and stuff like that with the red eyes and, and things like that. Then there's also the, just the, I like to call it the bag appeal of everything. There's, you know, you go to a store and you have a nice, you know, shopping bag and stuff like that, or you can go to, or you can go to one of these services and get, you know, your brown paper lunch bag. Yeah. And then inside of that bag is maybe a black bag full of, you know, what's hopefully cannabis. Yeah. No, that, that, that. I, I see I see what you're getting at because I mean I was just hearing us I just heard a story on Vice they were running about all these fraudulent carts of uh, for vapes that are causing health problems and whatnot and it it really seems to discredit the industry I mean for an industry that's working tirelessly to legitimize itself it's really hard when you have when you're working against so much media stigma and and so much history that's not on your side which is really unfortunate for someone who's trying to legitimize their business and i guess that leads me to the next point even though you operate in a legal market you're selling art i mean do you see a stigma that persists around your gifting of cannabis or just cannabis use in general oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. Well, there there's um there's still the stigma there's i think that i think of there is like two kinds of stigma around cannabis there's the um it's illegal stigma. So just the fact that the letter of the law says that it's not federally legal. And then there's the, it's a, it's a drug stigma. It's a, it's a, it's a negative thing that has no, as, as a schedule one drug is defined, it is something that has no medical or um, no medical use whatsoever. And that is just a really, that schedule one that no, uh, beneficial use stigma just really persists around cannabis. And part of that is, as you mentioned, the, the media, um, environment around that, the, the kind of the pop culture that you have around the image of the stoner or, um, being kind of the, the gateway to the gateway to harder and heavier things, you know? It, it, it seems ridiculous. I mean, being a schedule one drug, it's considered what more dangerous than methamphetamine, which would have been yeah. a schedule yes. two. I mean, working under that, how does one build a safe and accessible brand when the market is this strange place between clandestine and legal? I mean, how do you, what steps do you take to build this safe and accessible brand? I think that the things you have to be really thinking about, the way that people are perceiving you always. And I, what I mean by that is, you know, as an internet based business, you know, in this world that's controlled by social media, you know, all it takes is one review to like completely sink a business pretty much, you know, one really bad Yelp review and a restaurant can really like be hurting. Mm -hmm. And when we started this business, we thought we want to create a place that you'd recommend your mom to go to. You'd recommend your grandmother to go to because you wanted to give them the help they needed. Yeah. Because they didn't have a place to get this safely. They didn't have mm -hmm. a place. Like, they don't have the knowledge or the means to get it themselves. So we wanted to provide a service that would make it easy, accessible, and most of all, safe when you're when you want to consume your cannabis. And so we, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, do you have a... Your image is your reputation and your, yeah. your 
you're already working on an kind of on an uphill battle when it comes to cannabis because people already have a negative connotation. So if you want to build something that has nothing but a positive connotation, you have to go mm -hmm. really hard the extra mile and make sure that every everywhere you have a presence, your presence is positive. Yeah, no, no, I see. I see exactly what you mean, because I mean, you're running exclusively online. I mean, this again, this podcast, there's no storefront for it. And if I if I get a negative review on on Apple Podcasts, I get a one star review. Mm -hmm. I mean, my goose is cooked at that point. I mean, no one's going to listen to a three star podcast. There's so many out there. Why would you? And sure. no one's going to shop at a store that has three stars on Google. Why would you? There's so many other stores. So mm -hmm. I see exactly what you mean. You're already working against the stigma, but then you also have to consider the the competition that goes on working as an online business that's that seems so tough that seems um seems stressful i guess would be the way i would uh definitely oh, cool. seem stressful for sure so speaking as speaking of like, complications and seeming stressful now seems as good a time as any i mean why must you operate in the manner that you are because we didn't really lay this groundwork for the audience i'm a bad host oh, I mean, you why, why are you yes. gifting why do you have to gift weed to people why do they have to buy your dog's artwork. Why is that the setup that's going on in DC? So it, it all it all really starts with the with initiative seventy one. With initiative seventy one. I was well, I was gonna say something else, but oh okay. I'm sorry. Uh, so I guess if you really want to get to the 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 bottom bottom of it, it all starts with the Home Rule Act, which was enacted by Congress to pretty much give DC its own legitimate government to have um, its city council and its mayor and things like that. Now, something that also that also is part of that is the appropriations bill that goes to fund that government for DC. And what's on that appropriations bill is something called a rider. And a rider is just like a little tidbit that's added to like a budget. That's, so like, that has nothing to do with the budget itself, yeah. but it is thrown in there because a legislator wants it to be there. And so, so Andy Harris, a representative from Maryland, decided that great idea to put a rider in um, the appropriations bill to say that DC can do nothing to regulate cannabis and can spend no monies to enforce or regulate it. So that means that you're not going to pay police to be policing these businesses. You're not going, you're not going to be paying a regulatory body to over oversee it. You're not even going to be paying to put out pamphlets or things like that. The initiative 71 is pretty much summarized on a one site on the mayor's website. And, and that takes us, though, to what yeah. Initiative 71 is, which is okay. what built the gifting model. Yeah. What um, legalized recreational use of cannabis um, in the District of Columbia. But along with that, it, it legalized the consumption and transfer of cannabis. So you can consume it on private property, okay. not federal property. Very important. Very not important. federal property, yeah. Um, so you can consume it on private property and you, you can have, you can grow it up to six plants, um, three, three flowering, three, not flowering. Um, and then you can transfer it, but from one adult over 21 years of age to another adult over 21 years of age. Um, and that is what has created the gifting model. So, so you can't sell it, but you can Give it away to your friends if you feel like. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so, you, so you can you can't sell it, but you can give it away to friends or whoever. Or right? whoever. And yeah, and, and you can't roll one up on the treasury building property, right? And so no, that's not, total not no yet. no. Okay, great. That that's good to know. That's good to know. Um, I mean, again, speaking of challenges, and it's because it seems like you really have to navigate this legal gray area, which seems. I guess I won't get into that right now. I won't get into what it seems to me, but is it a challenge working against decades of ads and materials born out of, you know, like Nixon and Reagan era anti-drug campaigns? I mean, you have entire generations that grew up saying, I mean, this is your brain and they hold up the egg and then they crack it in the frying pan. This is your brain on drugs. I mean, there's so many ads that 
work against what your business model is placed on? I mean, is it hard finding new consumers or new customers? I mean, well, did you find a welcoming and interested clientele awaiting your arrival when you showed up on the scene? I mean, what was it like? Um, Actually, oh, you know what? It's a little, you know, it's a little both. It's a little bit of both. It's a okay. little bit of both. Um, we we were very well received by DC. I feel I feel as though we've we've never really had an experience where somebody came to us and was disappointed with the service itself. Mm-hmm. I feel as though there may have been there may have been times where people have come to us and maybe been dis- disappointed in, you know, maybe we were late that day or yeah. something like that. You know, those little annoyances that you know can make or break a first time client. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would say that you know, the way that we built our business, making it safe, accessible, things like that, and making it easy to use, has made. Was very well received by by DC. And I think people have always really um, referred us referred us around and things like that. So I would say, okay, so we found a receptive audience in DC. Like we we found a um, there was a market, there was a demand for sure. I would say where we really encounter the challenges of working against those those decades of Nixon era ads that you were referring to where that comes into is um, I would say more in our personal lives as owners of this business and that in, in making people understand that this is, this is going to be one of the biggest industries in the country once it's fully legalized. Like Mm -hmm. this is a, a legitimate business. It's not, we're not drug dealing anymore. Like that's yeah. not what this is. Um, and so fighting against that stigma though, that you have encounter maybe as a member of the industry is really high, but in terms of how our business was received by the market, that yeah. was all dandy. And as a business owner, how do you contend with the idea that the entire rich history of your substance you give away as a gift is often overlooked and discounted by a decent size portion of the of the population. I mean, do you do a lot of outreach and education through your organization, or I mean, how do you approach the idea that a lot of people just don't know? I mean, we do a lot of education, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't say outreach. Uh, outreach is outreach is a lot, but I would say we do a lot of education because we really do try to elevate the cannabis experience through education, empowerment, and providence. And we- And what that means and what is- that, What that pretty much means is that we, we try to make everyone an educated consumer. And what that, and being an educated consumer doesn't mean that you know, you know, exactly how the, you know, internal mechanisms and things like that, you know, work in a car. Being an educated consumer means that you know that if you go and you're trying to pay for a Toyota Camry and you're spending $50,000 on it, you're overpaying. That's, yeah. that's, I wouldn't know that way. <laughs> it seems that you have to go above and beyond what is typically expected of a business in order to just survive. Or would you disagree with that? I, I guess I don't see it as. <sighs> I don't necessarily see it as going above and beyond. I see it as not un, like not underperforming anymore. Oh, okay. So you're, I, just, I guess you're meeting what you should see as what, like, what, what consumers should expect. What okay. what the, what the people deserve. Like people that deserve. is that is the the level that I think that we're we're hitting. Um, but I I will say that you know with education all all of that i i do think that there's no amount of education that like could be provided you know outside that takes that should be valued more than just the conversation between like children and their parents about about like drugs and things like that and about cannabis i feel like if you if you place all of the 
onus on on pretty much on business owners to educate the cons the consumers, then you're never going to get any anywhere. But if you start if you start the same way that you start with alcohol, the same way you start start with um, tobacco, with your father or mothers, you know, saying, "Hey, you know, come here, maybe take a little, maybe take a little sip of wine." Oh, you didn't like that very much. Okay, well, that you know, whatever. Okay. And you know, you, um, not like they should, not like you should do that with cannabis. But yeah, yeah. what I'm saying is the the teaching moments that you have with your with your parents and stuff like that um, are very valuable. And I think they provide a lot of things that get rid of a lot of the stigma that comes along later on in life. Like it. So, well, okay, let me, let's yeah, try to, I, I want to dial in on that a little bit. I mean, so do you believe that education should be undertaken in a more formal systematic way, education about cannabis that is, mm, or yeah. is the onus on the, entrepreneurs and and the growers involved i mean do you think there should be some sort of formal oversight that says i mean this is the prescribed curriculum when it comes to someone learning about cannabis or whatever it might be or do you think entrepreneurs and educate their customers um i think that there that there should be both honestly okay. i think that there are um there's benefits to to both kinds of forms of education you need to have um, you need to have like a base knowledge of like of cannabis, of its like benefits and its drawbacks accurately. And but like I don't think that I I think that 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 is something to be taught in a systemic, more yeah. formal formal way. Like these are the the established facts, and then it is the entrepreneur and the business's responsibility though to have to have full knowledge of their wheelhouse of what yeah. they are carrying personally what they are supplying to people um i think that it is the a societal responsibility to understand the basics of cannabis and cannabis usage and it is a business's responsibility to take ownership of their products yeah no i i love that answer i love the of both because there's so many binary it's this or it's that mm -hmm. i've always gone with you know i like peanut butter i like chocolate why not both or i like beer i like hot wings why not both at the same time so speaking of who should take a role in educating or just really in regulating in general in dc is there some kind of regulating body that oversees the commerce or is not really no that's no. part wow. of the wild west aspect there is and that's um, going back to what we we're talking about with the um, the Harris writer. The no money can be put into regulating or enforcing anything mm -hmm. having to do with cannabis. So, and to have a a regulatory body, you you need to have people, you need to have money, yeah. you need to have time, you need to have resources, and we're not allowed to put anything towards that. So, and that's that's the other piece of why there isn't really. Um, quality control mm -hmm. in any way because there's nobody overseeing that there's no positions to do that there's no board to do wow. that um yeah. so i mean so where do you think then the responsibility should fall i mean do you think as someone who's working in the markets do you think someone the market should regulate themselves or do you think you need an outside body to lay out some guidelines some regulations saying this is what you can do this is what you can't do i mean i would say that in most markets, I am of the opinion, kind of like with the the age of the internet and things like that, where you know internet companies have kind of started to manage manage themselves and things like that. I think that there's a time and a place for that, and for certain markets it works. But in the cannabis market, having been a black market for so for so long that you really do need an outside an outside body you need you need to have somebody to do quantitative analysis mm -hmm. on pretty much you know on the actual supply the de the demand on you yeah, know yeah. Yeah, the plants themselves that are actually going to be in there um on the market and things like that because if you don't have any of those facts sitting in front of you if you don't have 
any of if, yeah, if you don't have that facts facts in front of you, then you have no way to to tell whether or not there's fair com competition or that there's no harm coming to consumers. For a market to truly be healthy, I think you do need that that external body. What we're talking about, okay, we're talking about regulating markets, and we're talking about you guys being an internet business, and it really got me thinking that. Inter interestingly enough, and again, this this isn't my own thought. I can't take credit for this. I was watching a documentary recently, and someone made this point. Just popped back in my head. The only two markets to refer to their customers as users are technology companies, and and as a society, we've largely allowed the technologies markets to regulate themselves, and I would argue to deleterious effect. But what would if if someone came to you and asked you how would you regulate the DC marketplace? What are some common sense policies that you think you should adopt to, as you as we move, you know, against this tide of toward legalization? I mean, what would you suggest? What do you think? Just working in this market would be like, yeah, that would make a lot of sense if they did X, Y, and Z. That is a I was say, that is a huge a question. question. It's, a, it's a loaded question. A this is a podcast. We could just talk about it. You know, we can just yeah. chill out. Just uh, well, um, I would say I would say the first place that you need to start um, with in mind is consumer interest and consumer protection. So first and foremost, I think that you need to look at establishing purity and quality standards. You need to know that like when you regulate something, the government takes ownership of the safety of that product first and foremost, like when you regulate and when you tax something that is now the government saying like, we, 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 agree this is what it says it, it, it is. Okay. And I think when you, when you look at it that way, that means that you need to be making sure that it is whatever you say it is first and foremost. Um, after that though, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of huge pieces you need. You need a licensing structure. You need a taxation structure. Like, you know, the cannabis is a really valuable commodity. There's no reason that the government shouldn't, shouldn't be like building new schools off of it, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Chris is like, maybe not new school. <laughs> <laughs> maybe well, more expensive, maybe baby. You <laughs> definitely take care of like the deficit or something. I mean, for sure. I I think it would be a great. I like Imagine that. telling the students, "How did the school get built?" Well, it came from cannabis money. Students saying, uh, "Support another school being built." <laughs> <laughs> but I I think there's to like to, I guess to get back like more deep and dirty with it. Um, Here we go. I think they're all a like a transitional structure as well because right now you have i mean the black market still exists in dc they they can you know they can make it recreational legal all that all they want but they're still going to be a black, a black market, market. Yeah. so you have these black market companies <laughs> and you have then you have the i-71 companies and then even more so, you have the medical dispensaries. So now, there have been like a lot of um, there have been like a lot of talk about having you know the medical dispensaries be the first ones to be like onboarded onto the new um, licensing structures and things like that. And I think that's like a ridiculous thing that you're going to have these monopolies because i mean there's only like five of them in dc so yeah. you have these you know monopolies that are now going to come in and monopolize the recreational market as well so you need to figure out a trans a way to transition in mm. i-71 yeah. businesses and the medical market and as well as open it up to any new businesses that want to start in like so you have to come up with some kind of structure in that way um and there has to be you know somewhat of a low barrier to entry because you can't it yeah, can't yeah. be like Seattle where it's like you're you're paying a million dollars for your license before you even do anything yeah so is, i mean is that what you're hoping to see then some sort of trend is that what you would like to see rather some sort of transitional i guess outline of we're going to do this 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 and this is how we're going to move from exactly. I uh, initiative 71 to legalization 
-hmm. Yes, that is that is something so, that we would look. And now, is it, is, it is the prospect that they just say, "All right, it's legal now, and we're going to let the uh, recreate, we're going to let the um, medical dispensaries handle recreation for"? A is that your greatest fear that they're just yeah. going to be like, "Hey, it's legal, no but guidance." Not really. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. that would be. Well, yeah. Okay, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, no, that mean that would definitely be the way of a bureaucracy to be like, "Hey, it's done. Deal with it." Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so. This next question um, is definitely is definitely a little bit personal. It's definitely getting to your personal philosophies about things. I mean, this question of of this conversation rather of regulation, I mean, is going to be at the forefront of our national consciousness over. I mean, in the next decade, probably sooner. Yeah. What is what is weed to you? I mean, why should average everyday people have access to it? I mean, why is this something? I'm not asking you to be advocates, you know, I'm just, in your personal opinion, what do you see as the value? I, I guess I'll, I'll go first and then, I, and then Anis will go. Um, but I think cannabis is a, a lifestyle. It's a, it's a cultural accessory. It, it's a complex personal plant that really, I mean, it's, it's beautiful to the eye, but I think it's also like beautiful almost to the soul. I, that's a really deep way of, of looking at it. But I, I find that when I'm consuming cannabis, I am open to more, to more ideas, to, to different things. I, you know, I, I live my life in a way to expect the unexpected and my empathy is dramatically increased like my ability to connect with other human beings on an emotional level is yeah, dramatically increased. And I, I find that it really makes me my best self. Not saying, Oh, you know, when I'm, when I'm high, I'm, I'm only my best self, but you know, yeah. I, yeah. And then I guess for me, I've always, I came, I came to cannabis later actually in in my life i wasn't i didn't try it in high school i didn't yeah. try it in college um but for me cannabis has really been a tool of freedom um so it's no secret that i i live with the i live with a mood disorder mm -hmm. and it is something that i handle that i manage pharmaceutically and it's just very it can be very wearing um and i found cannabis as a as tool in my toolbox is something that relieves me from my anxieties like nothing else and that is something that i think every person should have access to that that tool um in their in their own lives it's 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 a plant it's yeah for everybody yeah. No, I, I mean, I totally hear that. I mean, I haven't done an episode formally on weed, but I mean, I did a whole series on on psychedelics and, and the response to those episodes is very similar to, I mean, what both of you have said. It opened mm -hmm. people up to in crazy amounts of empathy and they and they, they liked the experience. They liked themselves after that experience. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. and, it, and it helped and it, and it aided them in, in uh, coping with different disorders and whatever it might have been. And I have a feeling then, gut instinct here, and we could be totally wrong, that so many people share the exact same story as, as both of you, both, both of you rather, I just sound like I'm from New Jersey. And um, <laughs> I think that I think that's amazing as business owners to really, I mean, have a background that is probably very similar to many of your consumers. I mean, that's, that's, that's beautiful. But do you, do you see yourselves, do you see yourselves rather as, as advocates or educators, or is that a role that you think you've been cast into given the circumstances that you're operating on? Or is it something else entirely? I gave you two options. I mean, that was a <laughs> shit job on my part, but I mean, do you see yourself as something else entirely, just business owners and that's it? Or what is it? No, I, I do see us as educators. I think I, yeah. um, I mean, we, we both actually, we both come from relevant backgrounds of this academically. Um, Chris studied psychology um, and I studied biology and genetics actually. Um, oh my God, I just lost And computer science. And computer science, I just lost the question. <laughs> what was the question? I just lost my train what, of thought. What, is, sorry, what was, was the question? Shit, that's a good question because I don't even remember what the question was. <laughs> 
Um, all right. Oh, well, we see ourselves as educators. No, no, we do see ourselves as educators. in. Give me a <laughs> Do you see yourself as advocates or educators, or is that a role you've been cast into given the circumstances that you find yourselves in? There we go. Ooh. Yes. Um, I do see us as educators. I don't, I don't know that I ever saw myself as an advocate, but I do think that is what we're kind of getting molded into and with this business. Um, but I see us as having information that other people that our clients don't have. Like we've done research, we've like done the digging and I see it as are part of our job, part of our responsibility to pass that knowledge on to our clients to the best of our abilities. Um, so I guess I, I do see us as, as educators in a way that you're not going to get. Yeah. And I, I always Otherwise. kind of, this is kind of going back to what you, what we were talking about before with, you know, education on like the grant grander scheme of things with cannabis. But I, I view, I view it as kind of a, a big um, like pyramid pretty much where you have, you know, every, every layer of the pyramid is like one, one step closer to being like the most, I guess, not enlightened, uh, not educated, educated, <laughs> educated um, in terms of cannabis. But like, I see that like breeders, for example, those who actually like create the genetics of, you know, icicles gorilla glue number four you know whatever like yeah. those those people have a certain responsibility as educators to know their to know their product that they're creating and to teach the cultivators those who are actually going to be growing that product everything there is to know know about it it's you know it's advantages it's drawbacks you know like it's little quirks things like things like that. And then from the cultivators, then come the retailers, I guess. And then the retailers have the responsibility to now take all of that information, all the genetics, all the science, all of that, and now to break it down and make it more digestible for the everyday person. Mm. And I feel as though that's really where we are today we are that in that sweet spot where we have a great opportunity to destigmatize cannabis to educate on it and to really help help people in a meaningful way that's not i guess performative for yeah, yeah, yeah. for business reasons or things like that no for sure i mean as we were talking i've i've been taking notes, of course, but I drew, you said a pyramid. So I'm like, all right, I drew a pyramid. And, and the way you describe it, it seems like a high wire act, you know, if one person screws up on informing the next person. It's just this, it's, it's really this, this interesting business in which every person has to be really educated in what they're doing and what they're providing, and then do a fantastic job of, of describing that to the next person down the line, you know, it, it builds. And if one person gets mm -hmm. it wrong, I mean, the next person gets it wrong and the next person gets it wrong. And that could really, that could definitely be a problem. I, that's, I think that, that was a, that's a great way of describing it. I'm, I'm going to break away from this line of thought. I'm sorry. Okay. We, this has been a great conversation so far, but I, I, I have this thing that's been gnawing in the back of my head. I have a logistics question. So okay. Okay. what's the time commitment like? behind a single order i mean between the art the sourcing of the gift quality control pickup i mean delivery how much time goes in behind a single order that you guys receive so i'd i'd pull the camera back a little bit okay. and think less about the individual orders okay and more at days and weeks of orders mm -hmm. because the time commitments that go into those can be months long because you have so I'll, I'll start you know just sourcing the gift in general you have to meet with many different many different individuals who have you know whose skill sets are all all over the place and you have to now create a business relate like uh, create a business relationship with them to understand the time commitment that goes in on their side and understanding exactly how how much they know about their their product how like 
how good are they at mm-hmm. you know, cultivation and things like that. Um, and then you also have you have the creation of the art that that is its own process. You have the actual painting of the painting. You have mm-hmm. the the production of the prints. You have um, for our edibles. You have the 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 bake the creation of the can of butter down to then to the the baking of the actual good. Um, mm-hmm. So like and not and not even and we completely skipped over testing and all of that yeah and then there's the time that you take to do to do testing so you know behind one order is is a lot of work a lot of work is like at least like i don't know maybe 50 hours worth of work yeah and that definitely has to then affect the price i mean that it's obviously a concern i mean with that much work behind a single order i mean obviously i mean that's a lot of back end that you typically yeah, wouldn't would think about. Down, yeah, right? uh-huh. like there's, For sure. There's definitely a lot that goes into each one. So, I mean, obviously you're not going to see one part of the process as standing out as the most important because every piece of the puzzle is crucial. But do you view, again, we've been discussing a lot about this, this Wild West motif when we're discussing mm-hmm. the market. I mean, do you see quality control is like what sets you apart i think it's definitely foundational to what sets us apart from our competitors i'd go more so to say it's attention to detail attention to detail because quality control i feel like at least like from like the way that i look at it i feel like quality control is only thinking about the the product or like the the good that is actually being you know gifted with i feel like with with district herb with us it's the attention to detail on every piece of the interaction between a user clicking the link to go to districtderp.com to the have a good night at the end of like yeah. after they receive their delivery or, or pickup um i think the the way that we go about identifying the the common issues that people face when they are trying to buy their buy their art you know um procure their cannabis you know things like that we we identify those pain points and we've put policies or procedures in place to smooth those wrinkles out and to make it a lot and to make it a lot easier and approachable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that it's definitely a big part of what we do is the quality control of the actual gifts themselves. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really like what sets us apart from everyone else is the is really the consumer centric focus mm-hmm. that we have and the mm-hmm. art really it's our inability to like settle for mediocrity in any way yeah no i i totally can understand that i mean that's that's the same methodology that goes into this podcast it's just like i've listened to so many mediocre shows and i've just been totally disappointed that i wanted to create something that's actually worthwhile so i I can totally i could totally get behind that that argument but so in doing research for this episode for sitting down and talking to you i mean i've seen places selling $70 stickers and overpriced Wu-Tang Clan merchandise. But uh, why did you, we kind of hinted at this already, but why did you choose art as as the product? I mean, what kind of value proposition is that that, that brings to District Derp? I mean, why why artwork? Well, I think it it does bring in a value proposition to the business. It, it's something unique that you're not going to get anywhere else first of all um the the art the concept itself is unique and then the the product at the end is completely unique you're not you're not getting a a sticker that you could find on etsy next week so there's there's that that unique aspect um then there's the the practical as we talked about before that art is subjective it's it's worth what what you think it's worth um and can you help me out here? Yeah. I... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, art. We chose art because my favorite quote of like all time when it comes to art is Andy Warhol. He said, art is whatever you can get away with. Yeah. I think that 
we really have we we chose to get away with something that was so playful and 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 cute and just um somewhat furry <laughs> but you know we we created something that was um very visually appealing to everyone and i think also just like emotionally appealing to Mm -hmm. everyone yeah no i mean uh, well be careful with furry the internet's a big place and this is going to a lot of people but um i mean again throughout the marketplace i mean i, I was doing a lot of research i really wanted to understand i mean this this gray area you're working in and i mean there seems to be so many gimmicks and unreliable delivery services and you guys seem to eschew that and you stand alone as this well-designed business. And I mean that both logistically and aesthetically. I mean, was curating the organization's image a large part of forming District Derp? I mean, can you walk me through the design process? I mean, how much effort and I mean, how conscious were you of the way you designed how your business looked online? Imagine how conscious we were of how our business looked online. That was that is probably one of our singular obsessions. Yeah, I would yeah. Say. Um, well, I could definitely tell it comes through. I mean, the website and everything is so well designed. It's beautiful, of course. Thank you, um, thank you. Um, but yeah, I mean, we the curation of District Herb's image has been just at the forefront of our minds. You know since the very beginning we we worked with so we we originally started with our you know our legal team and stuff like that and actually building out like the logistical ends of our business but we then worked with our creative team and our creative director christine mitchell who runs the y creative in baltimore um she we really worked extremely closely with her and our and our um group of designers to really come up with a logo, a color palette, you know, um, a, an image that would fit with our ethos of an image yeah. that fit with, um, our values, um, to really cultivate the, the cultivate the kind of business we, we really wanted to be, we wanted to have exist. Um, we, we really do. Yeah, we wanted to to cultivate the type of business that we that we wanted, but we also we wanted to have something where immediately upon seeing it, you just you have this comfortability with it. I guess. Yeah. So like it's warm when you walk in. I mean, it doesn't feel something shady. It feels like you're on, you know, you're going to shop on Amazon or something. Not exactly. not that Amazon is the great representation of what it is, but it, it feels like a. I mean, okay. So I pulled up on a side tab while we're talking a, a your website. I mean, home, shop, gift guide, story, education, press, facts. I mean, it feels very approachable. Exactly, approachable. It feels yeah. approachable. And that was that was that the point? Was that what you really wanted? Was something approachable, something welcoming? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, as Chris said it earlier, we wanted to be someplace that you could you could recommend your mom go to like where you didn't have to go for your mom. You could tell, you could tell her mom, just go here, do this X, Y, Z. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's great to hear that, that, that comes out. Um, yeah. And it, it was, it's, we, we wanted to craft an image that was approachable, that was safe, that, and that felt um, very inclusionary for everybody. Mm -hmm. Nobody felt, um, put off or put out. So we made an effort not to um, sexualize anything, for instance. Yeah. Like we like you'll see that with a lot of services and a lot of um, a lot of things in the cannabis industry, frankly, are very sexualized. Um, but we took a really big step away from that with our brand very intentionally. Yeah. And again, this is kind of going off the cuff. So feel free to screw you. Yeah. I'm not going to answer this, but you were um, Earlier, you were talking, and this kind of bounces off what you were just saying. You were talking about how it's male dominant dominated industry. I mean, why why do you think that is? Why do you think that's the case? I mean, yeah. I think that's the case 
because you have the fact that women didn't really enter the the workforce, workforce until until you know now I'm not even gonna pretend like I know the date so <laughs> until whatever that whatever that was but it definitely wasn't a long um wasn't that long of a time ago and then on top of that you also have in I mean in just design in in general you have that's a male dominated industry as well I mean when you think of like think about Mad Men you know like Mark mm -hmm the marketing campaigns of the, like of the forties and fifties and things like that. Like, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. No, no, no. pauses are cool. Take time. Think about yeah. it. I, mean, I, I put you on the spot on this one. It's totally okay. I don't know. I don't care if we're sitting here for five minutes. All no, good. it's a really interesting question. It's a, it's a good question though. Like, um, obviously in the past hundred years, you have the historical stigmatization, but before that, like, Cannabis was one considered one of the 50 foundational herbs in Chinese medicine 4,700 years ago. Like cannabis has been seen as medicinal for much, much longer than it's been seen as um, recreational or as even something negative. Um, so the fact that you don't have more women in something that was originally so considered so medicinal is interesting. Like that's, that's, yeah. Like that's definitely something to think about. I think it has to do with the fact that for so long, cannabis has been a black black market item. Um, and it, you know, when when it's a black market item, it's, it's drug dealing. And how often do you see women drug kingpins to be, yeah. to be there, There's definitely not a lot. I mean, just not off the top not, of my head, not, I can't really think of any. Immediately. And you know that actually brings up a, a a good point the in the black market of with pretty much any any drug i think there is a constant power dynamic between so competition isn't necessarily about whose is better whose is cheaper things like that it's a lot of who has the most power. power, who has the most territory, who has this. And that's not something that's- Women have historically yeah, par participated Yeah, in women haven't historically participated As the nature in. of, yeah, like, as the nature of gender roles, yeah. Yeah, I, I like to throw the curveball every once in a while. Hey, I mean, this is this has been great. Thank you guys so much for coming on. I mean, this oh, is- uh, I think this is something that my audience will, will get a lot out of. This is, it, it's a marketplace that people don't really think about, but there mm -hmm. are- thousands of Americans that it's their livelihood. I mean, this is, it's a job for many people. Yeah. And it's, um, I guess one more thing. I'm, so many Americans have been affected by, by COVID-19. I mean, mm -hmm. plenty of people have lost their jobs. Plenty of people are unemployment. Plenty of people are getting calls back and asking for their money back, which has been happening increasingly. I mean, we're talking in Ohio, Florida, Maryland, for example. Um, oh yeah. So how has how has COVID-19 uh, affected affected your business? Because you're not many dispensaries were allowed to stay open many, but you're an art gallery. I mean, you sell art. What, <laughs> yeah. How does I don't think art galleries were allowed to stay open. I mean, how does that affect your business? We we had to shut down. Yeah. We, shut down. Wow. Yeah. Um, when when COVID-19 first really started making its appearance in D.C. and um the mayor put out the shutdown order. We we closed for two and a half months, actually. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah um, with with all the other non-essential businesses, because as you said, we we are an art gallery first. We are not um, a medical dispensary. Yeah, But once we were allowed to reopen, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, once once we were allowed to reopen, um, we definitely. I mean, we we definitely took a hit in terms yeah, of, our, yeah, of course. our overall business and stuff because you have, regardless of how, you know, really regardless of how great of a business you have, or anything like or anything like that, regardless how great, it is, if you're you're not around to be giving that product to somebody, mm -hmm. somebody's going to go someplace else. Yeah, and I found that. And we found that that was 
exactly what had happened when when we like when we started opening up again people had there there were clients that would that texted us after three months and went oh wait are you guys open <laughs> you guys like, still exist like we people were like oh i thought you got shut down or something like yeah. you know and they thought we were just permanently closed mm -hmm. so um, um but i think that you know covid19 has also done a great a service to us a little bit because okay. we were able to take that two and a half months and really hone in on what made like what mm. differentiates us from others and how we could better our website how we could better the customer yeah. experience you know how can we make our edibles more delicious how can we you know mm. ensure more consistent dosing things like that yeah and we were able to have that time where we weren't spending our like all of our time preparing orders and doing things mm -hmm. like that and we could spend our time really sharpening our blade yeah very that's very uh it's very stoic of you the obstacle became the way that's yeah. ah, yes hell uh i'm all for allowing um allowing a hint of optimism to be the end of the episode this was so I think that's where we're going to end. I mean, this is great. I really enjoyed sitting down with both of you, having a conversation. I, I hope this is something that um, all of you who are listening could uh, could learn something from, uh, take something, and uh, you know, be more informed when this inevitable conversation about legalization comes up. So uh, again, thank you both for coming on. This was a pleasure having you. Thank, thank you, you so much. much.